You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning, church. How are you guys? Good to be with you. You're looking beautiful today. Uh, My name is Sam. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And I'm excited, friends, because today as we open up our Bibles, this is the last week of our current series called The Arrival. All right. And so open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to end this series. Remember I told you the book of Mark, we've kind of split it up into seasons, right? Like your favorite Netflix show. So this concludes season one. We'll take a break for those summer rhythms. And then later this summer, we're going to resume uh, season two, part two. So don't miss it. Uh, As you turn here, I'm just curious how many of you like puzzles? Any puzzle lovers? Puzzleophiles? Are you doing a puzzle right now on your phone? Okay, I see you. I get it. I respect that. Uh, I'm curious because this morning we are going to be presented with a puzzle. This morning in these verses, we are going to have a puzzle. As a matter of fact, it's a very particular type of puzzle. There's these puzzles that are called Spot the Difference. How many of you know those puzzles? Oh, how many of you love those puzzles? When I was a kid, I used to subscribe to these highlight magazines. Remember highlights? And it's like two pictures and they're almost identical. They look virtually the same. But the closer you look, the more you notice the differences. And so you circle them and you highlight them. I have three boys and my boys love these puzzles. They'll sit there and go, oh, I'm I'm so close, I'm so close. And I'm sometimes tempted to put like two pictures next to each other that actually have no differences. Just to buy myself like 30 minutes of quiet time, you know what I mean? Like You're so close, keep going buddy, you know. You spot the difference. If I were to put two pictures before you, would you be able to spot the difference? Are you perceptive? Do you pay attention to detail? Would other people say that you are a keen observer with a sharp eye? Can you spot the difference? What if I were to put up two pictures before you this morning two pictures side by side, both of them representing an approach? to relating to God. Two pictures, both portraying a mentality about God, both demonstrating an understanding of God. Two schools of teaching about the same God. One of these pictures belongs to the prevailing religious leaders of the day, and the other belongs to Jesus and his gospel. And as we have these two pictures side by side this morning, the question for you, friends, is can you spot the difference? You see, we're not just doing this as like a historical exercise, right? So that we can know more about Bible history. We can see the difference between Jesus' teaching and those rabbis' teaching. No, no, no. If we give ourselves to this this morning, if we lean in here and pay attention and track with this, my prayer is that we will be able to leave here and see the difference between Jesus and his gospel and the prevailing religious thoughts of our world. More importantly, my prayer is that we would leave here and be able to see the difference between Jesus and his gospel and the prevailing religious thoughts of our own hearts of our own mentalities, that we would be able to see Jesus and then look in the mirror and spot the difference. And so are you ready for a puzzle this morning? Anybody ready to spot the difference? How many cups of coffee did you have? 
Like, I'm ready. Here we go. God's word is going to begin chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This is God's word for our church this morning. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pause there. Our first scene, people show up and they have already noticed a difference about Jesus. They have already spotted a difference. You see, it is time for the holidays in Jerusalem. There's no place like Jerusalem for the holidays, as the song goes. And so they're there for the holidays, not Christmas, not Thanksgiving. The Jewish people, they had a number of religious holidays through which they could celebrate and remember important events in their history. And during these holidays, just like you and me, they had traditions. They had customs and practices. And so the Jewish people, during certain holidays, they would practice fasting. They would abstain literally from eating food. Not the way that I fast sometimes, where I work so hard through lunch and I go, oh, I'll just fast. No, that's not fasting. That's skipping lunch, right? Or maybe you, you go to the doctor and they say, okay, we're going to test your blood. You can't eat for seven days before your blood work because we got to be. I'm like, what is that? It feels like that, right? They're not fasting for medical reasons. They're not fasting because they work through lunch. This is an intentional spiritual discipline that God's people have used for centuries. This is a way that we can tell our bodies, hey, it is time to focus on spiritual appetites, not physical ones. Like this is a way that we as God's people can say, I'm going to forego the delight of food and instead I'm going to delight in the Lord. And so typically, instead of eating, they spend more time in extra prayer. Uh, Often they'll fast to concentrate on a single prayer focus. Fasting is valuable. It's also a way of saying no to our flesh, right? I am not tasting the delight of food, and so I'm reminding myself that my desires, that my belly is not in charge. Food and my passions don't rule me. Jesus does. God is our Lord and our sustenance, not food. All right? And so if you've never fasted, look it up. This is a a regular practice in the family of God. Jesus doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. And so you read, you pray, we fast. This is part of our practice, all right? And so the religious leaders, they're all here and they're fasting for the holidays. But when people look at Jesus, they notice a difference. They go, okay, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus, I see that John's disciples are fasting for the holidays. The disciples of the Pharisees, they're doing these traditions. I'm just curious, we couldn't help but notice, why do you not observe the same practices? Excuse me, sir, I I was just wondering, why do your disciples not fast? Why is Jesus not doing the normal traditional things at this holiday? Well, there's two reasons that he gives us. The first one he gives us, it's a matter of timing, okay? 
He goes, I'm not fasting. We're not fasting right now because it's a matter of timing. He assures them, hey, don't get me wrong. They will fast. He affirms the importance of fasting. He's not getting rid of this. They will fast. There is much value to be had, but there's a season for everything. There is a time and place for everything. And right now is not the right timing. And he gives us this metaphor. He goes, imagine you're at a wedding. Do the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Do you sit there at the wedding and people are like, hey, are you going to eat your steak? And you're like, no, this is a time for sobriety and deep contemplation. Like, Why aren't you getting on the dance floor? Why aren't you eating? You know, I'm waiting for the groom to arrive. And they're like, uh, he's the one out there doing the electric slide right now. This is not the right time, okay? A wedding is not a good time for somberness. It's a time for celebration. In the same way, the arrival of Jesus is not a time for fasting, but a feasting. He says the groom of God's people is here, and therefore they cannot fast. The groom is here. That's the name of our series, The Arrival. But notice, as we journey through this book, this is the first hint that we get from Jesus that the groom will not be here forever. Did you notice his little hint? Look what he says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Jesus is already preparing them. He's already planting seeds as to the nature of his mission. He is here, but friends, this is not the wedding reception. This is the engagement party. There's still more to come. And so like a groom in those days, he's going to go away. He's going to get things ready. And then when he comes back, that's when we'll have the wedding ceremony and the wedding reception. That's when we'll party. That's when we'll be with Jesus forever. And so he's here right now. And so he's not going to fast because it's a matter of their timing. But number two, he's also not fasting as a matter of their thinking. Okay? As a matter of their thinking, he gives us these funny metaphors. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You can't use a new patch. You can't use an, an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Because when the new patch shrinks in the wash, that's why you have to like buy a size up. You put it in the wash and it shrinks. If you put an unwashed new cloth in the wash and you attach that to something that was already shrunken, there will be no give. It will tear a deeper hole. A new patch requires a new garment. You go, man, I don't really get the laundering metaphors. He goes, no problem. I have one for you who enjoy wine. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. You cannot put new wine into wineskins that have already been stretched out and they're old being reused. Because as the wine ferments and expands, that old stretched out one has no more room. It has no give. And so what happens? It bursts the wineskin. And you just wasted all the wine. If the wine is going to be enjoyed and appreciated, new wine must have new wineskins. In the same way, Jesus' new message, this gospel that he is bringing, it cannot be framed. It cannot be contained. It cannot be properly understood with the old prevailing religious mentalities. If you're going to get it, if you're going to appreciate what Jesus is doing, then we need something newer than these old, outdated ways of understanding our religious practices. There must be a new mentality, a new understanding. 
And so what is he doing? He's not fasting on the holidays like the religious leaders because he's trying to distance himself from what they're doing. Already, he's starting to draw a contrast. He's already starting to separate himself, making a distinction in people's minds so that people can understand there is a a massive difference between the empty, ritualistic practices of the religious leaders and Jesus. He's drawing a contrast between the way that his followers will practice their religion and the way the others currently practice theirs. He is drawing a distinction, friends, because to understand Jesus requires a new way of thinking. To understand Jesus It requires a new way of thinking. He's going to teach his followers how to live out their righteousness. Yes, he's going to teach us how to practice our disciplines, but we will miss it if we fail to see the monumental difference between what he is doing and between what the scribes and the Pharisees have been doing for years. If we fail to see that Jesus is not just the next teacher in a long, continuous line of religious practice, if we fail to see that he is so different, we will miss the beauty and the power and the radical freshness of what it is that he is introducing into this world. To understand Jesus requires a new way of thinking for them and also for you. If you're here this morning and you just assume that Jesus is continuing the long line of religious leaders that you have watched on television, if you just assume that there is no difference between the stuffy and irrelevant religion that you experienced as a kid, if you think that's what Christianity is, if you assume that Jesus is no different than the religious leaders who have hurt you and abused you and failed you, if you, if you assume these things, you will fail to miss the beauty of what Jesus offers you. You'll fail to miss the beauty of what Jesus is bringing and offering to those who follow him. If you fail to see the difference, friends, you will walk away saying, been there, done that, I already know the gospel and it is pointless and irrelevant. But if you come to Jesus and allow him to speak for himself, If you come to Jesus and allow him to show you the massive differences, you will realize that the irrelevant dead religion that you rejected was actually not even the gospel. Those of you in here who have just turned your back on religion because you despise corruption and abuse, if you come and hang out with Jesus, you'll realize you're actually in really good company because so does he. You can't understand Jesus by using the lens of the mainstream religious mentalities of our world. To understand Jesus requires a new way of thinking because they're different. And so how are they different? What are the differences between the gospel of Jesus and the religion of these scribes, the religion of the religious leaders? What is the difference? Well, for the next couple of scenes... We're going to start to see it more and more. Let's look at the second scene here in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? 
He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to him, to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here we go, friends. Jesus is turning heads on the Sabbath. You leave the synagogue, you grab your cup of coffee, you're high-fiving people, you go home and you take the most precious Sabbath nap. How many of you are going to take a nap after this, right? I am. Right? You go home and you take a Sabbath nap and you're, man, it's glorious. And you wake up, you bust out your phone and you have 72 and a half notifications on Facebook. And you're like, what did I miss, right? And you realize that most of these notifications are coming from one controversial post and you hate yourself for admitting it, but you actually go through and read every last comment. What is going on? What did I miss? Your Facebook is blowing up, friends, because Jesus took a leisurely stroll through the grain fields on Sabbath. And along the way, he wanted a snack. And so him and his disciples, they plucked some grain as they walked. And you're reading these comments and you're trying to discern why are they so angry? What's going on? What's the big deal? You don't think it's a big deal, but Facebook clearly disagrees. The shock and the anger of the Pharisees, they are filling up your newsfeed and they're all posting, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Hashtag Sabbath breaker. Like, why is this trending right now? What is going on? And so you, you check your DMs, you make some phone calls, you're like, did I miss something? And so you phone a friend and you go, what's the big deal? Can you explain this to me? And so they would explain to you that the Sabbath was a day of rest. <sighs> the Sabbath was a 24-hour period where you were not required to produce. This is actually God's commandment. He didn't suggest it. Hey, here's some leadership practices. It was one of the Ten Commandments. He says, rest, honor this day. Because you see, you understand the Sabbath, it's not just a way to prevent burnout. It's actually an act of worship. Because when I stop working for 24 hours, it's my way of saying, God, even when I'm not working, you are. It's a way of acknowledging my limits. It's a way of realizing you're God, I'm not, and I put my faith in you that even when I stop, the world will keep spinning. And so Sabbath, it was a gift. A blessing from God. Relax. Refresh. Take a day off. Enjoy your family. Spend time with me. Acknowledge your limits and recharge. Sabbath is a gift from God to bless his people. And so God commanded rest. I mean, that's in the Bible. He commanded the day of rest. But in an effort to observe the Sabbath well in an attempt to make sure that they were obeying God's law, in an attempt to make sure that they did it right, the Pharisees, they produced a list. How many of you like lists? Not me. Uh, He produced a list, 39 things that you could not do on the Sabbath. Otherwise, you were a hashtag Sabbath breaker. I'm like, 39? Like, we couldn't find one more thing. You know, like, like a perfect 40? I'm just like, I'm tweaking here, you know, like, Isn't 40, no, 39 things you can't do. And they probably stopped at 39 to show you just how meticulous they were. They counted. And so we, you know, we we roll our eyes and we may laugh, but let's be fair, okay? Though their intentions probably started off really good, didn't it? 
they probably wrote that list out of a place of going, I really love God and I really want to obey him and I really want to honor him and I really want to Sabbath well. Let's give, him, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But at some point along the way, in the practice of their policies, they lost the point of the Sabbath. Somewhere along the way, they started to miss the point and we know it because look how they respond to Jesus. They go, Jesus, uh, excuse me here, everyone knows that you're not allowed to farm and harvest on the Sabbath. You can't start a fire. You can't extinguish a fire. You can't weave. Sorry, basket weavers. You can't even pick grain. You can't harvest. You can't sow. You can't reap. None of this. So Jesus, everyone knows this. And look, you just plucked a head of grain, which is technically harvesting. And therefore, sir, you are a Sabbath breaker. And I just, I don't know, if I was there, I can't even begin to tell you what my face would look like. I'd be like, 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 would you like have enough energy to even go toe to toe? Well, actually, no, because technically I don't, like, I wouldn't even have words. I'd be so angry. You know what I mean? Like, are you joking? Are you kidding me? We realize that they have missed the point we realize that their, that their practices and traditions have become excessive and have gone way beyond what God intended. Friends, we realize here that we can turn heavenly blessings into heavy burdens. Guys, let's be real. Come on. Are the disciples trying to squeeze in some overtime? Are they trying to like get a little side hustle on the weekend to earn a little cash because, you know, following Jesus doesn't pay a lot. And so maybe we can just like, you know, sell some, some grain head? No. They're not working. The disciples are doing exactly what the Sabbath was created for. It was intended to create space for. Relax. Take a leisurely stroll. Spend time with your creator. Literally, he's right there with you. They're not breaking God's commandments. They're breaking the Pharisees' traditions. And that makes religious people angry. You see, the point of the Sabbath is to rest. But the Pharisees have missed the point. They have sold out to a meticulous observance of God's rules. And yet they have missed the intention of God's heart. In the name of enforcing rest, they are disturbing the rest of God and his people with their excessive rules. And friends, we're beginning to see just how broken the prevailing mentality of the religious leaders were. We're beginning to see just how in need of renewal and revival things were. We're starting to spot the difference. They have taken a heaven, what was intended to be a heavenly blessing and instead they're creating heavy burdens. And so Jesus, he's better than me in every way. And so he doesn't sit there and just, he, he goes, well, you know what? How about I just tell you off, right? How about I just tell you what is wrong? Let me tell you how far off you are. And he says to them this, he goes, have you never read what Jesus did or what David did? Pause there. I love words. Notice how he doesn't say, have you ever read? Hey, have you ever read this? That's inquisitive, right? Have you never read this? That's accusatory. Jesus is getting fiery, all right? He's like, oh, have you never read? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is it possible that you have mastered the traditions of man and yet you have failed to master the word of God? Excuse me, I thought I was talking to the religious leaders. Let me refresh your memory. Don't you remember when David was on the run 
He was an outlaw being pursued by King Saul, running for his life with his band of merry men. And they're on the run, on the hunt. They are starving. And they run into a town and they meet a priest named Abiathar. And they say, bro, please, I'm starving. Do you have any food? And the only food that the priest had was the bread of the presence. Did he bust out the rule book? Well, technically... The law says you can't have this, so sorry, pal. Like, did he bust out the rule book? Did he get nitty-gritty? Did he try to, to observe the law to a point that he neglected God's people? No. He gave him the bread. But didn't he break the law? No. The Old Testament gives us no indication, not even the slightest hint that maybe they did something wrong. And now here Jesus is doubling down going, no, they got it right. And do you know why they got it right? Because not only did they know God's law, they understood God's heart. Would it have made sense in the name of preserving the law, which is intended to bless God's people, in the name of, of, of obeying God, would it have made sense to neglect and see his people die? I think of the classic example that every college student gets in ethics class. If the Nazis show up to your door, and they say, are you hiding a Jew? You tell the truth and you say, yes, I am. And you trust that God will protect them. Okay, that is one school of thought. I'll be respectful, okay? Or is it possible that in the name of obeying the law, we've lost, we've lost the point of what the law was intended to do? He goes, have you never read what David did? The priest understood not just the laws of God, but the heart of God, And yet the Pharisees are here, and through the practice of their law, they are neglecting the very purpose and point of the law. And this is where it gets gross. Because in the name of God's law, they're actually neglecting God's heart. And Jesus doesn't stand for this, friends. Jesus doesn't stand for this. God in the flesh is looking at these guys in the eyes, and he's not going to allow them to misconstrue and perpetuate a bad example of his heart. And so Jesus tells them, he sets them straight. He goes, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists to keep and serve man, not the other way around. And yet you are putting the keeping of the law, more specifically, you're putting your extracurriculars and traditions above the well-being and blessing of man. And he says, guys, this is backwards. Can you spot the difference? The former, they are laying heavy burdens on people, and yet Jesus is here, and he's giving them heavenly blessings. We've already seen Jesus display his authority over demons. Remember that? He has authority over the demonic. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over disease. He has so much authority that he can pronounce someone forgiven. And now we see here that Jesus also has the authority to confront and correct the religious establishment. What? How, who are you to correct the temple and the way of thinking? This is so much bigger than you. He goes, actually, no, it's not. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't come to our church and conform. He rules over our church and leads. 
Jesus doesn't come to submit to the standards of our day. No, he comes and he corrects and he confronts and he calls us out when the, when, when the practice of our rules have gone too far away from the heart of God. He is Lord of the Sabbath. I remember there was a, a very special season of my life. I was in high school and I came back from youth camp. How many of you have special memories of youth camp? I came back from youth camp and man, my heart was full. I loved God. I, my, my affections ran so deeply, and I wanted nothing more than to know God. I had seen a glimpse of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I had gotten a glimpse of the gospel that I'd never had, and it was like my heart exploded with joy, and I went back home and I said, I want to know God. I was throwing out old CDs. I was deleting contacts out of my phone. Anybody remember that? You know, I was just there. And you know what else I did? I said, I want to know God so badly. I want to not care what my friends think about me so badly. I want to be able to live for an audience of one so badly that I said, every day, I'm going to read my Bible. Every day, I'm going to spend time with God and I'm going to run into his presence and I'm going to spend the first part of my day with my Savior. And I loved it. Every day. And I don't know how it happened, but somewhere along the way, reading my Bible became less about running into the presence of God and more about checking that box. Reading my Bible became less about what it was intended to do, less about drawing near to him and more about building up myself. And I started to feel good. And, I, and it was, basically became a burden. It became like a dumbbell that I felt really proud of myself. Look what I'm doing. I got seven days, 14 21 day streak Bible reading, let's go. And it became a burden by which I can demonstrate my own moral excellence and vigor and willpower. And so it became a way to make me feel good. And when I dropped that weight, when I failed, when I missed a day, when I lost my streak, shame, guilt, I felt so bad that I actually would end up avoiding God for three days. Like, I would not read my Bible because I felt bad, and so I had to distance myself to pay for my sin. The very thing that was intended to be a blessing and draw me near was now being a burden that pushed me away. Do you get it? Not because there's anything wrong with this, because I was approaching my Bible reading like a Pharisee, not like Jesus. And there is a difference. Can you spot the difference? Does this sound like the religion that you have learned? Does this sound like the religion that you grew up with? Does this sound like the religion that you are currently living out in your own life right now? Are you like the Pharisees? You've reduced your religion to keeping the rules. Have God's ways become a means, not of knowing him more, but of demonstrating your own righteousness. These are opportunities to prove your own strength and your moral excellence. When we approach God's ways like this, friends, it's not because we're trying to draw our attention to God. We're trying to draw God's attention to us. God, look what I did. I'm good enough. And we think that maybe if I can be more moral, if I can be more meticulous, then maybe it will be enough and God will accept me. You see, some people, they need to repent of their blatant sins. And everybody knows that part. Some people need to repent of their blatant waywardness. 
But some people need to repent of their good works. There are people who are obviously far from God, but then there are people like the Pharisees. There are people like me with my Bible who we need to repent of our good works because the moral insiders are just as wayward as the wayward outsiders when their good works are filled with self-righteousness. We need to repent when we delude ourselves into thinking that we can somehow measure up to God's standard Friend, Jesus came for the sick, but these kind of people don't even realize they're dying. And that's scary. Lord, save us from religiousness. Save us from self-righteousness and arrogance. If you thought they missed the point in the grain fields, friends, oh man, if you thought these guys were a kick in the grain field, just wait till you see them in the synagogue. Do you have time for one more scene? It's cringy though, I'm not gonna lie. Like, can I, can I show you these guys in action one more time in, in the synagogue on a Sabbath? You've been warned. Check this out. Verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. (laughs) Do I need to say anything? Are you kidding me? Friends, our puzzle is getting easier and easier by the minute, right? You thought it was going to be hard to spot the difference. And right now in our final scene, we see the differences glaring at us in high definition, crystal clear 4K. These are different things here. You see, there was the presence of a man with a disability. He had a withered hand. A handicap, right? In in this day, this is your livelihood, right? So this man doesn't just have a cosmetic deformity, he's hurting. He's in need, his social standing, his financial situation, every, this is a holistic issue here, okay? And yet, when this man walks into their synagogue, one of their people, when it comes in, it does not provoke compassion. It does not provoke empathy. It exposes a heart that is bent on keeping control. They don't see an opportunity to show love. They don't see an opportunity to help their fellow man. They see an opportunity to show everyone just how much better they are than Jesus. Hey, you guys didn't believe me when I told you this guy's no no good. Watch this. I bet you when this guy comes in, I don't even know that guy's name, but when he comes in, he won't even be able to help himself. And Jesus is going to break the Sabbath right in front of your eyes. Get your popcorn. Let's see what he does. They don't see this as an opportunity to help. They see this as an opportunity to catch him in the act of helping people so that they can accuse him. And in this jaw-dropping, mind-numbing scene, we see that people who call themselves the people of God can be as far as possible from the heart of God. Their religion is dead. Their religion is bankrupt. 
Their religion has no value for any of our problems. And yet, Jesus, thank you, Lord, Jesus is different because Jesus replaces lifeless religion with loving restoration. Oh, guys, Jesus is so different. He's so different. Remember the man with the withered hand? Like, think about it. Those are his leaders. that's the cultural climate that this man is living in. Hurting people are regularly under the leadership and authority of those kind of people. And Jesus sees this man hurting and he is moved to anger. Jesus shows up as a king, not to make nice suggestions, but to create holy reformations. And he looks at the establishment. And I can just imagine, like at this point, this is the third scene. At this point, he's got the vein, you know? You guys know, he's got the vein, the, the cheeks are red, and he is just, and, mm, and it says he looks at them, and he looks around with anger. He is grieved at their hardness of heart. Everything inside of him wants to shout, this is unacceptable. And so he sets them straight. He sets them straight. He goes, let me ask you a question. And they go, uh-oh. I know what it's like when Jesus asks questions. He's not inquisitive. He's fiery. He goes, let me ask you a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? I, like, I was just wondering, it, is, would, would God be happier if I didn't break your rules and I watched somebody bleed out and die? Or, like, would that be better than me actually helping them? Can you, can you help me, religious leaders? Is it lawful to do good? I'm just wondering, because you don't seem to be wanting me to do that. You'd rather me stand by and watch someone hurt than save them and break your rules. And you know what their response is? <laughs> Nothing. They're silent. They've missed the point. And the, obvious is, the, the, the differences are as obvious as ever. They are more concerned with theological correctness than godly compassion. But friends, Jesus is different. And so you know what he does? He does exactly what you would expect him to do. (laughs) He does exactly what those of us who are paying attention expect Jesus to do. He looks to the man and he says, come here. How many lives have been changed because of those two words? He looks at this man and he says, come here. Because what I have is so much greater than what you can find out there in your religious leaders. And so I imagine the guy, he walks up to the front and he probably is doing one of these, right? You know, he's probably a little self-conscious. He's probably used to having his hand in his pocket. And he comes up and goes, hey, what's up, Jesus? And Jesus goes, hey, mister, uh, and he says it loud enough for the people in the back to hear, right? And he goes, hey, mister, I'd like you to stretch out your hand. He's, ah! No, 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 no. Hey, I want you to stretch out both hands. Why? Just stretch it out. I want you to raise it so high so that the people in the back can see it. And he stretches out his hands, and you just imagine his face as he goes. He drops to his knees, and he realizes as he stretched out his hand, his hand was restored. Didn't just restore a cosmetic thing, friends. Remember, he just changed this man's life. Why does Jesus do this? Because the Pharisees were right about one thing. Jesus can't help himself in the face of need. Jesus can't help himself in the face of the hurting He has come for this very thing, to do what lifeless religion could never do. He has come to serve. Jesus has come full of compassion to rescue those who are trapped. 
to heal those who are hurting, to find those who are lost, to restore those who have fallen. Friends, where dead religion fails, Jesus saves. Where dead religion fails, Jesus saves. This man had nothing to gain from the religion of the Pharisees. They couldn't even begin to touch his problem. Like, even if they couldn't heal his hand, they were so morally bankrupt, like it didn't even cross their minds to go, can we create like a safety net? Can we do some donations? Can we get a meal train going? No, they had nothing to offer this man until he met Jesus. And then he realized there was hope for him because Jesus offers what dead religion can't. And friends, I say this to you kindly and full of love, and I say this respectfully. Dead religion has nothing to offer you. Well, isn't it good? They're going to church and they're stuck. No, no, guys. Dead religion, not really. Dead religion has nothing to offer you. Just like the man with the withered hand found out. You see, our problem is something greater than a withered hand. It's a withered soul. Our problem is not that we can't work with our hands. Our problem is that no matter how hard we work, we will never be able to be right with God because given every single chance, we choose our own ways over his ways. Our problem is that we are estranged from God. That relationship is broken because we sin. That's our problem. And so friends, you have two options with your problem. And I'm not judging you. I'm not saying this disrespectfully. I'm in the same boat. We are all born with sin. All of us fall short of God's glorious design in many different ways. You and me are in the same boat, brother and sister. But we have two options, and here's where the road diverges. Option number one, keep trying to save yourself. Option number one, try to fix your distance from God with greater moral conformity. Play the religious games. Strive for greater adherence to the rules. More church attendance. More Bible reading. Raise your kids better. Be better. If only we can become moral insiders. If only we can look the part. If only we can walk into the church and fit in. If only we can get the clothes right and the vibe right and the Instagram hashtags right. If only we can conform. Surely God would take us. But none of these things can save you. Only Jesus can do what religious observances fail to do. Only Jesus can make you acceptable to God. And so here's your second option. Do what Jesus said when he said to the man, come here. Come here. Well, first I got to make sure. No, no, he didn't say, just come here. We can leave our dead religion behind and come to him. And he will do for you what the lifeless traditions of man can never do. Friend, when you come here, he greets you with compassion. If you come here, he will make you clean. Cleaner than you could ever make yourself. When you come to Jesus, he dresses you in the righteousness that you've been trying to weave for yourself. Just don't do it on the Sabbath because that's breaking the law. He will give you the status of son and daughter of God, a status that you could never earn in your life, but he's already earned it because he lived a perfect life. When you fail, he will greet you, not with the withering glare of the morally superior, 
but with the grace and kindness of the one who has already purchased your forgiveness. Friends, can you spot the difference? I told you this was a picture puzzle this morning. I told you that we were going to have two pictures side by side. And as we've gone through this passage, we've spotted the difference. But now let me give you the answer key, all right? Let me, let me spell it out for you. What are the differences? Religion says save yourself through obedience. Jesus says, I'll save you. Religion says earn your righteousness. And Jesus says, here, have mine. Religion says, embellish your goodness. And Jesus says, acknowledge your weakness. Religion says, go obey. Go obey. And Jesus says, come and learn. Religion shames and guilts. And Jesus saves and liberates. Religion says, you'll pay for that. And Jesus says, I paid for that. Religion says, you failed, try harder. And Jesus says, you failed, come closer. Religion says, do good so he accepts you. And Jesus says, do good because he accepts you. Religion shines a spotlight on me and Jesus leads us to shine a spotlight on God. Religion says, make sure you do more good than bad so that way you have a positive balance. And Jesus says, you are so hopelessly in debt and I'll pay it for you. Come here. Come to Jesus. Are you tired of dead religion? Are you tired of trying to empty the ocean with your tablespoon? Are you, are you tired of trying to do, 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 and yet never feeling like that ache and that distance and that pain and that shame is gone? It's because you're trying to do, and religious practices are trying to do, what only Jesus can do. Where dead religion fails, Jesus saves. Let me pray. Lord, Father, we thank you right now for your goodness. Lord, we thank you so much that you have done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this gospel truth. Help us to see the differences. And then, Lord, would you give us faith? Help us to dare to actually believe that it's true so that we can live every moment of our lives in light of that gospel grace. Father, I pray for my friends here who are under the burdens of religion, who feel like they can't measure up, who are trying to climb a wall with no footholds. Lord, would you carry them out? Would you show them? Would you give them faith to believe that you alone can save them? And Lord, I pray for us in our hearts and in our church that you would save us and forgive us for dead religion. Forgive us for a religion that can see the hurting around us and do nothing and not be moved to compassion. Forgive us for a religion that is more concerned with our own moral accomplishments than those who you have called us to love. Forgive us, Lord, for putting burdens on people, making them feel unwelcomed into your family because they don't measure up. Lord, forgive us and save us and deliver us. God, we need you. I pray that this community, that the Eastern Shore would experience revival, that they would experience a wave, Lord, of your grace and of this gospel, that dead things would live again. It would be refreshed, that hard and crusty and dry things 
would be washed over with this gospel so that you would be glorified, so that people would see how great you are, so that people would love you and that your kindness would lead them to repentance and they would do what Jesus said, come here. We love you so much, God. Keep us in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.